Before we begin, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we implore you to give us spiritual wisdom as we investigate this text. May we see that the truths that are um, there in this ancient story are truths for us today. May we find our own brokenness in the brokenness of these people, but also may we find our great healing and redemption and renewal um, in what the story points us to, a Redeemer who intercedes, we pray. Amen. When I was a youth group leader back in St. Louis, my mentor said to me, he said, Mark, I think it'd be a good idea for you and Leslie to every now and then get a nice long weekend away. And here's what he said. He said, Branson. <laughs> Go to Branson, Missouri. It's not far away. It's beautiful. It's very relaxing. And it's really, really cheap to go there. First, I laughed, kind of like you guys. Uh, but then found out, yeah, it's not that far away. Great trout fishing. There's go-kart tracks everywhere. And um, pretty much an ice cream stand on, on every corner. So uh, we ended up going there three or four times. And one night, we went to a very nice resort. You know, we're like, let's go spend some money, have a nice meal out. So we went to this nice resort. There's a little bit of a wait for dinner there. And uh, finally, we, we got a table. And as we're sitting at the table, we noticed that the, the line at the hostess stand was really backing up. And there was these two young couples, uh, a lot of, about, about our age at the time. We saw them slowly making their way to the hostess stand. And, and the next four top was going to be theirs. And then lo and behold, a table clears off, and it's, but before the hostess could see the table was available, this other group, two couples, older couples, led by this woman, I'm not joking, she looked like B. Arthur from Maud, she knowingly sees the line and goes and snags the table and has her friends sit there with her. And you could tell by the looks on their faces, they were a little bit uncomfortable with it. And I was ticked. I mean, if I had the Ten Commandments, I would have like smashed them at her feet. But I did something else instead. I went over there with a smile on my face and I said, I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I hate to do this, but I can't help but think like maybe you're like a famous movie star or something. I feel like I should know you from like some place. Like, are you a movie star? You should have seen her. She's like, oh, she's soaking it all in. And her friends were like enjoying the whole time. And then she says, uh, well, no, I'm not. And I said, hmm. And I let her have it. That's interesting because I could have sworn you were like, like, like a famous movie star or something. The way you kind of just bullied your way in here and kind of in a snobbish way just took over this table from those two young couples. I could have sworn you were a famous movie star. She have seen the look on her face. <laughs> she have seen the look on the, her companion's faces. They were just like eating it up. Evidently, I hit the nail on the head. I returned to the table. Leslie's giving me this look like, what in the world just happened there? I told her what I did. She says, no, you didn't. <laughs> I said, yep. She leaned in and said, Mark, don't you ever tell that story. <laughs> This woman demonstrated that not only was she impatient, but she really lived. Her whole life was consumed with serving herself. She suffered from what we could call impatient self-servitude. 
Our passage today, we see impatient self-servitude on a massive scale. God had promised that he and Moses would lead his people into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here they are. They think, why are we still here? Whatever happened to Moses? It's been 40 days. Has he been injured? Has he, is he dead? Or has he just picked up and left us? On the one hand, we can understand. 40 days is a long time, right? But on the other hand, had they not witnessed God's power and his loving care far too many times by now to, to doubt him? They should have waited upon the Lord, but they do not. And so they approach Moses' older brother Aaron, and they tell him to fashion this golden calf. And what is the purpose of it? Look at verse 1. They say, up. That's like, get up, old man. Make us gods who shall go before us. See, listen. They like the idea that God was taking them to the promised land, but they did not like his timing nor his demanding nature. See, it's not so much that they didn't believe in God. They just wanted God to operate according to their wishes. One commentator put it this way. The calf represents Yahweh on their terms. Christian, let's be honest. Are you not tempted to want God but on your terms? You will wait a little bit for God to act on your behalf, but if it takes too long, well, let me bow to something else to let it go before me so that I can get what I want. We, too, like these ancient people, can suffer from impatience, self-servitude. We don't trust God's ways, nor do we trust God's timing. So we turn to idols, no, not of gold, but idols nonetheless, idols in our hearts to get us what we think we need. Instead, though, of embracing idols, we must remind ourselves that God alone is worthy of our affection. We must be willing to joyfully wait for Him to lead us wherever He desires to lead us. And we must be content with whatever manner of life He brings us to experience. And so as God's people this morning, here's what this story is telling us today. Because God is worthy of our devotion, we must destroy our idol. We're going to look at this under four headings. First, taking notes, because of the allure of idols, we must demolish them. Earlier, Debbie read from 1 Corinthians 10, and there Paul actually quotes this passage in Exodus 32. And he says that the Israelites and how they acted with all this idolatry serves as an example to Christians today of the what? The allure of idols, how they can lead you astray. And Paul ends that passage by saying what? So therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, some of you hear this talk about idols and you think it isn't something that you need to worry about. But on the front of your bulletin, consider the words of John Tyson. It's printed there for you concerning the prevalence of idols from his book, The Burden is Light. Here's what he writes. We often believe that sex, money, power, security, stable relationships, recognition in our field, well-behaved children, having the right address, or moving to a new city will heal us. When we look to these things rather than to God for our salvation, they become idols. And all idolatry results in slavery, for idols are harsh and demanding masters. 
At best, an idol is a coping mechanism for dealing with our brokenness. At worst, it places us in a cycle of dependence on or addiction to something that can never make us whole. My friends, you either live wholly for God and His glory, or there is an idol in your life. It's as simple as that. I provided a couple handouts in your bulletin. We're not going to go through them, but one is a checklist that came from a Tim Keller study. By going through it, I think it'll help you maybe identify one or two areas that perhaps the Lord could work on. The other handout lists some of the idols that we find inside the church. I think you'll find those interesting. Maybe you'll find yourself on that page as well. Um, no time to run through them, but would you guys like later this week or today prayerfully go through those and, and use them for your good? The point though that we must see is that, is that idols are, listen, they're alluring. Nobody says, oh, today I'm going to bow down to the idol of physical beauty so that when I get old and wrinkly, I'll become bitter over the fact that my usefulness, youthfulness has disappeared. Nobody says, today I will bow down to the idol of comfort and ease so that when I get old, I'll have nothing to show of my life. No ministry fruit, no legacy of lives changed, no deep lasting friendships. Nobody wakes up looking to be enslaved to idols, but we are lured by them nonetheless. Why? Listen, because like those ancient Israelites, we believe they will deliver to us some God-like blessing, but on our terms and according to our timing. That is what idols promise us, God-like blessings on our terms. Idols take normally good things like that God gives us, like marriage and income and rest, and it, and it turns them into ultimate things. Take wealth, for instance. The Gospels... In the Gospels, there's an amazing one out of ten verses in the Gospels deal directly with the subject of money. In the Bible, there's 500 verses on prayer, close to 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possession. Why so much attention? Because money, wealth, and possession is the greatest of idols that can ensnare us and allure us. Instead of resting on the provision of God that he would have us to enjoy, we say that we know what's best. And we bow down to the God of the lucrative career, or at least the somewhat decent career, and we begin hoarding, or we begin spending on ourselves, or both. How foolish, my friends. How short-sighted. As if stashing away a million dollars here on earth will make any difference in the age to come. But then again, we can make a difference. See, actually, if we steward well the money that God has entrusted us, to use. He's given it to us for His glory. Think of all the new churches and counseling centers and pregnancy resource centers that could be established. I know it sounds a bit harsh, but that's what the Israelites were doing. They wanted God in their life, but on their terms. They wanted to get to the promised land, but in their timing. And consider this. Consider the sad reality. What if they were to have gotten into the promised land on their own, apart from God. They would have been in the promised land, but without God. It would have been an utter failure, right? And so it is when we give in to the lure of idols. We lie to ourselves and say, well, God just wants me to be happy. How many times have you heard a Christian say that? God just wants me to be happy, so I'll marry this unbeliever because he or she makes me happy. 
listen, I don't mean this in a, in a harsh way, but every Christian I know who marries an unbeliever experiences hardship, not the happiness they were hoping for. Hear me well. I'm not saying that God can't in His mercy and grace work in those relationships. I've seen it happen as well. But we cannot presume upon God's grace. The truth is, idols do not lead us into the promised land. They never lead you to a good place. Now, you see how insidious idols are? Idols idols reveal that inside we really don't believe God is good. We believe that in some way He withholds good things from us. That His promises aren't sufficient. You see why Paul says, flee from idolatry. Let me ask you, if you were to let the Lord search your heart right now, what idols would you find there? That's the allure of idols. Because of the allure of idols, we must destroy them. Next, because of God's character, we must demolish our idols. First, God's character is holy. And because God is holy, He has every right to be angry at our idolatry. You know, too many people today take offense at God. They'll say, you know what, my God would never get angry, let alone punish anybody. But think that through. That's kind of a naive statement, isn't it? It shows that people don't even know themselves. The same people who say that God should not get angry, they themselves get angry over all kinds of lesser evils, right? I mean, how many people freak out and go ballistic over the the fact that there's a liberal mainstream media? People go crazy about that. But on the flip side, think about how many people go ballistic today over MAGA hats, right? People are also quick to get angry at their fellow man and condemn them. But God himself, the God who made mankind in his image so that we would, with knowledge of him and love of him, that we would reflect his glory on this earth. This good and glorious God is for some reason not allowed to be angry or judge anyone for them taking their one and only God-given life and frittering it away for their own glory. Of course God is angry at our sin. He better be, or He's not a good God. In our passage, we see God react appropriately to the sins of the people. God describes His people in verse 9. He says, I have seen my people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, Frank Krzyzewski is not talking about you. I know you got your little neck thing there. Okay, what does it mean to be <laughs> stiff-necked? All right. Um, <clears throat> we are praying for you, by the way. Uh, to be stiff-necked is to be oh so settled in your obstinacy. Always rebelling, always questioning, always complaining, always blaming others. So God says to Moses in verse 10, let me alone. In other words, get out of my way, Moses, so that my wrath may burn hot against them and consume them. Yahweh is saying, let me put an end to them all. And then he says what? You see what he says in verse 10? In order that I may make a great nation of you, Moses. Hmm. A couple things. God has right to be angry. His holy character mandates justice. There's no other way. Second thing. Did you notice how God offered to Moses to start everything all over? I'll make a great nation out of you. Wow, what an attractive offer. What if God were to say that to you? All the rest of these nincompoops, forget them. I'm starting with you. From, from, from here on out, you're going to be the patriarch, not Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. 
Attractive as it is, right? Moses says what? No. Which highlights the quality of his character. Forty years earlier, he would have said yes, right? But now he's, his, his will is to do God's will. His plan is to stick with God's plan. He says no. Which leads to the second aspect of God's character on display. God is holy, but also what? He's committed to his covenant. Therefore, he is merciful. When God said to Moses, how about I start over with you? It got Moses thinking about the covenant of God. And first, in verse 11, he begins interceding and talking to God. And three things he says. First, he says, we read, Oh, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn, against, burn hot against these people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? In other words, he's saying, God, these are your people. Yes, they're messed up, but, but you love them. You knew long before they packed their Manischewitz matzo bread and headed out of Egypt that they were a little whacked out and messed up. You knew this and you chose to lavish your love on them anyway. So Moses is asking, why would you now nullify that great loving act of deliverance? Next, in verse 12, the second thing is, he essentially says, now why would you let the Egyptians get the last laugh? They're going to look, oh, you much all this power to redeem them out of Egypt, uh, and now they end up worshiping a golden bull, a golden calf, which is what? An Egyptian god, right? They totally say, "Good, look what happened, ha ha. And, and Moses is saying, don't let that happen. And thirdly, in verse 13, he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you, you swore by your own self. Remember, God took that oath. He said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. In other words, Moses is saying, Remember the covenant that you created, that you pledged yourself to, to Abraham and his offspring. These are his offspring. Moses knew how important the covenant was. Remember what a covenant is. It's not a contract. You enter into a contract to cover your rear end when the other party fails, right? But a covenant is not that way. A covenant like marriage is something you enter into to bless the other party even if the other party fails you. That's what a covenant is. So, Moses is reminding God of his covenant love and therefore the mercy he should show to these people. And in verse 14, we read that the Lord relented. Now, Understand this. It's not that like God forgot all this. And he's like, wow, Moses, I'm so glad I got you in my life. Wasn't for you. I'd have forgotten that I love these people. Holy cow, you know? No, that's not what's going on here. God does not change his mind like you and me. He doesn't relent like you and me. So why this exchange? A couple reasons. One, the Bible often uses human emotions and actions in order to help us wrap our human pea brains around important godly truths. Right? Hope I didn't offend anybody. Second, also, have you ever had to learn something to teach it to somebody? To somebody? Do you not learn better when you have to teach it or prepare a statement? Correct? Well, it's not that Moses needed to teach God a lesson. But in making his case to God, Moses was pressing this truth about God and his covenant love for his people deeper and deeper into Moses' own psyche. And guess what? Soon he would need to remember this lesson, right? Soon he was going to go down that mountain and he was going to see with his own eyes what God had just told him had happened. And unless he's got that same sense of covenant love and mercy that 
that God has, he really will fly off the handle and, doing so, and do something ungodly. Moses needed to be reminded of God's grace so that he would show God's grace to God's people too. And my friends, do we not need reminding here this morning of God's covenant of love and his grace? I mean, look around us here. None of us here are the people we know we should be. Right? Let alone the people God calls us to be. And yet, what? We are God's people. We are God's people, not based upon what we have done, but based upon what Christ has done for us. If there's somebody here who's offended you in the past, who's got trust in Christ, know this. God loves that person, has forgiven them. Therefore, we need to see each other with different lenses. We're so quick to judge and we're so slow to give grace. This is a reminder here that God is a God of justice and grace. The Bible says that all sheep, all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord laid on him, that's Jesus, our iniquity. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are those who have had their iniquity laid upon Christ, and they are forgiven and dearly loved. We need reminding of that, right? God is holy and we're not. Because of his love, he has made us holy. What I think we need to see this morning is this. It's, it's this delighting in God's grace that works in us to dismantle our idol. The great theologian, 19th century theologian, Thomas Chalmers, in his sermon titled, you can write it down and read it later, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Maybe you've read it. The expulsive power of a new affection. He covers this. He argued this, listen, that it's not enough to see that you have a vain idol that's captured your heart. In order to expulse it or to expel it, there needs to be a greater affection to replace it. And that greater affection must be God and his grace and his love towards us in this gospel. Otherwise, you'll replace that idol with another idol. So how do we expel our idols? We develop a greater affection for God, for His love for us, for His mercy towards us. Therefore, we must meditate upon fact that God alone is beautiful and holy and good, that He alone is all-powerful, that He is the sovereign one who's got a plan, that His will and His purposes are good. But we by nature are not good. Our wills are often apart from God's. And so, yet in Christ, God has given us the blessings of Christ to his covenant people. The gospel, by meditating on God and his love and his character, that has a way of, of pushing the idols out of our hearts. So my friends, when you identify an idol in your life, go to the gospel again. Flame in your heart true love for God. And then you will find that in your heart, there is no room for idols. Next, because repentance brings cleansing, we must demolish our idols have you ever had a fellow Christian come to you in love and expose like some sin pattern in your life or perhaps some sort of idolatry that you're exhibiting? And though the process was hard, in the end, there was joy and peace, uh, happiness, a sense of cleansing. In verses 15 through 19, Moses finally returns down the mountain. He sees firsthand the extent of Israel's idolatry. It angers him. He calls them to repentance. And in their repentance, it brings about a cleansing. 
Moses comes down the mountain, and what's in his hand? It says the two tablets of the testimony. What is that? It's the Ten Commandments. Now, let me help some of you here. Some of you think that the Ten Commandments had, like, each tablet had five, five of them on it. I, I know that's kind of what we've come to understand, but that's not really what we see in the Bible. It doesn't say how many were on each. It doesn't say there was two tablets, and they're written front and back, right? How do we understand this? Well, th- these are these are just normal documents. It's not like, not like I was writing, saying, oh, shoot, I ran out of room, right? Um, the, what, what, these are these are tablets of the covenant. In the ancient world, when there was a when there was a when there was a treaty, and you came and you, you had this covenant reality, there would there would be writings down, and each party each party would have their own copy, kind of like going to the closing of a house. You get multiple copies. There would be a copy for the the Lord and a copy for the vassal. Well, where's God going to put His copy? He can't take it back up to heaven. Both copies were to be in the Ark of the Covenant. I know for some people you're like, that can't be right. That can't be right. I know he's wrong, but not just trust me on that one. So that's what it was. So there's God's copy and there's the people's copy of, of this covenant. And Moses, what does he do? He comes down the mountain and he's with Joshua and, um, and they hear and see what's going on. And it causes great anger in Moses. Um, I know most of you probably have a real hard time believing this, but when I was uh, when I was a little toddler, my mother made the mistake of um, letting my brother and I go unattended for a little bit too long, and she came into the kitchen, and we had opened up the refrigerator, and we had taken out every can, every jar, every container. We opened them up, and we poured them on ourselves and on each other, <laughs> all over the floor. Talk about anger. We laugh about it now, but she had every right to be upset. The food cost money. We were wasting it. And who who knew how how much time it would take just to clean up that mess? Of course, we were way too young to know any of that. Moses walks down the mountain. In, in verse 19, they came near the camp and they saw the calf and the dancing. In verse 19, says that like God, notice Moses' anger burned hot. The same thing. God, He's experiencing the same emotions that God was just experiencing. Now he's seeing it firsthand. This is that same settled righteous anger. This isn't like you flying off the handle because you just got a little too mad because somebody hurt your feelings. This is righteous anger. Moses is feeling it. And what does he do? He smashes, smashes the Ten Commandments at the foot of the mountain. The very same place where, listen, those people stood just 40 days before and God spoke the Ten Commandments and they said, yes, all that you say we will do. In other words, we're part of this covenant. And, and Moses comes down and sees them violating the covenant and he smashes the ten, the tablets. Now, was he just, did he just lose his handle? Like, did he just go whacked out crazy? You know, oh, you know, like ninja mode, you know? No, he's, this, what he was doing here was symbolic. The, the smashing of the Ten Commandments symbolized that the covenant had been broken and now it was all in jeopardy. This is serious stuff. What does Moses do? He grabbed the cap, he threw it into the fire, he melted it down into a blob, and then he let it cool, and then he grounded it down into fine powder. That must have taken a while, right? Oh, he's grinding that away. And then what did he do? He threw it into water, all these little fine little dust pieces of gold, threw it into water, and he made the people drink it. Now, is this like some ancient equivalent of uh, washing their mouths out with soap? 
I've had that happen. But it's my brother who said it, not me. Um, no, Moses' actions aren't meant to be punitive. Instead, he's making a powerful point. Consider what's happening. These tiny little gold pieces, these little flakes that thousands of Israelites would have drank it into their bodies. 48 hours later, what would have happened? They would have been expelled in excrement, scattered all around the land, never to be reconstituted into an idol again. That idol was totally, listen, irrevocably destroyed. And so too must all our idols be totally and irrevocably destroyed. I don't know about you, but my tendency is to say, yeah, I don't like that, but I put it on a shelf, that idol only be taken down later when I feel like my rights were violated or my comfort just wasn't enough. Our idols must be utterly destroyed. So Moses looks Aaron in the eye and he's like, bro, what the heck happened? And he kind of fesses up, but he doesn't really. I mean, you see how lame his reasoning was? His excuse, verse 24. So I said to them, hey, uh, let any of you have gold, take it off. So they gave it to me. And, um, well, I, I just threw it in the fire and voila, out came this golden calf. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how it happened, but here it is. Sounds like something a three-year-old would say. I mean, I don't know. All I did was open the refrigerator and voila, I got pickles on my head. <laughs> we can laugh, but we shouldn't. Sorry. We too confess like that as well, don't we? We can own up to part of the story, but in the end we lack true repentance. See, listen, my friend, unless you and I genuinely acknowledge our allegiance to idols and how bad they are for us, we will not genuinely repent of them. We'll just stick them on a shelf for the next day. Now, Moses doesn't just offer Aaron a chance to come clean. He offers this for everybody, okay? In verse 26, Moses shouted. He says, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me, right? This isn't like, who's on the Lord's side, darn it. No, this is like, come on, guys. Who's on the Lord's side? Come. All right, I, all right, I got the Levites. All right, we'll start with you, right? All right, Levites, here's what I want you to do. Just go through the crowd here and grab a sword. Uh, most of the people are going to say, I, yes, I'm with the Lord. But there's going to be some who say, I ain't with the Lord. I don't care. I like pickles on my head. You know, I, I like sitting in a puddle of pickle juice. Um, and, 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 and those are the ones you're going to strike down. See, when, when we, when we read this passage, we get the sense that, that, that the, the, the Levites just went willy nilly and just like, there's somebody run, you know, and hits them. No, that, this, God, the, the, the call was to all who, who, who are with the Lord come. And so they were to go through all of the people and say, who do you stand with? you stand with the Lord or with these idols? And believe it or not, 3,000 people, 3,000 people after all of this would not turn to the Lord. They rejected the call to repentance. They were struck down. But listen, there was like 1.5 million Israelites there. 
in the camp and they rededicated themselves to the Lord. Mercy. You see that? Mercy for 1.5 million people in justice. Justice for 3,000 people who, though still sitting in a puddle of pickle juice, would not repent. My friend, Scripture says the wages of sin is death. Sin always leads to death. Unless, of course, there is genuine repentance. And then there is mercy from the Lord. That's what we see here. The people of Israel who deserved to be cut off were given a chance to repent. They received mercy and they were cleansed. You know, some of you here need to hear this for the first time. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is giving mankind a chance to repent. He's giving you a chance to repent of your idol-filled life and turn to Him. It's a free gift. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. It's a gift. That's why it's called a gift. You open it. You receive it. You trust in Christ and He cleanses you. That's what we see going on here, the picture of that. All right, so we see that because of the lure of idols and because of the character of idols and because of the, that repentance leads to cleansing, we must demolish our idols. Real quickly, one last thing. Because our names are written in the book of life, we must demolish our idols. In verses 30 to 35, something remarkable happens. Moses gathers the people and he says, guys, you've sinned greatly. But let me go back up. How many times have you been up that mountain? I don't know. That's a lot, right? Like He's got a well-worn path. He knows where to sit down. He's got his favorite rock halfway up, probably. He says, let me go back up the mountain. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. Once again, Moses goes back up the mountain. Verse 31, he confesses their sin. Particularly, he's not like, well, we weren't good. No, he says what their sins were. And then he pleads for them in verse 32. Look at this. He says, if you will, forgive them. But if not, listen, see the word there? Please. Please blot me out of your book that you have written. In the ancient world, local municipalities, governments kept records of individuals within their populace. The records were kept for all kinds of purposes, like taxation and military duty, establishing property ownership and such. If a person died, his name would be blotted out or scratched out of the roll. In Scripture elsewhere, we read that God has a book of life. And those who belong to him, their names are written down in it. What is Moses doing? You understand? Moses loves these sinful, rebellious people. They're his people. He's identified himself with them. And he says, God, please forgive them, but if you don't, blot me out with them. I want to be with my people. It's amazing, isn't it? I don't know if I'd ever do that. I'd say, yeah, you're right, God, take them. They're crazy. Can we go back to doing that thing you wanted to do again about... You know, starting with me. First I thought that was a crazy idea, but now I'm like, all right, let's start with me. I'm the new Abraham. All right. God gives an answer. It's not exactly what Moses asked for. Verse 33, 34, God says, whoever sins against me, I will blot out of my book. Then he changes the subject. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken. That is the promised land. God is saying, the trip's still on. 
I know you were grounded and you don't think we get to go on vacation, but we're going to the promised land. My mercy has come. But as to who receives eternal forgiveness, that's to be determined at a later date. My friends, this story of Moses is meant to point us to a far greater Moses, a greater deliverer of God's people, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know those Ten Commandments that Moses broke? Those are the most expensive thing in ancient history. If we still had them today and they went to auction, they would sell for billions of dollars. The very Word of God etched with his own finger on stone. Priceless. Moses broke those priceless commandments symbolizing a broken covenant. But listen, even more so priceless is Jesus' body which was broken for us. In the breaking of his body for us, the reality that we have broken God's covenant, we haven't been the people we know we should be, all of that has been overcome. With the death of Christ, all idolatry is now forgivable for those who repent. Christ was broken so that we need not be broken. Also, Moses said, blot me out of your book. Uh, if you could but forgive your people. And it was impossible because Moses himself was a sinner. But Jesus in his death for you was what? Three days in the tomb. His life was blotted out for a period of time for your sake so that you need not be blotted out in your life to come. And so hopefully you see that being written in God's book of life causes us to demolish our idols. The fact that your name is permanently written in God's book means that you can now trust him. Because you cannot see God. You know that He's there. We know that He has your best wishes in mind. Knowing that your name is written in God's book of life means that you can, you can finally trust God with all of your circumstances. It means if you're suffering, there must be a good purpose for it. So don't grab an idol and try to extricate yourself into some faux promised land of your own imagination. My friends, only Christ can bring you the gifts of God in God's good timing. So listen, when life leans on you, lean on Christ. Only Christ can help us overcome and destroy our idol. Let's pray. Father, this is a rather hard passage, but the truths we see in it, they speak to us we wish we wish the truth was was something else. We wish that we were like noble and never made mistakes and we we're always the right people we should be and that we that we that we never attached ourselves to crazy things like wanting to be super wealthy or or attaching to idols, things like that. But we are, we're those people. We all have idols. We're tempted to be allured by them. We pray that your power, we pray that your goodness and your glory would so fill our minds that that we would have such affections for you, Heavenly Father, that there would be no room in our hearts for idols, we pray. Amen.